So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. That's going to be kind of home, home base for us. We'll look at some other verses, bring in other verses. Uh, but we'll keep uh, coming back to that and kind of walk through uh, chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Now, there are various ways to examine your spiritual growth. There's many texts we could turn to. This one just keeps drawing my attention because of its clarity and, and the way that Peter kind of steps through various aspects of what it means to walk with Christ. Now, when we talk about a, a, a checkup, uh, the closest analogy is a physical checkup. You know, most doctors will tell you that you need to have an annual wellness checkup. And depending on the doctor, that may or may not be very helpful because some just kind of gaze at you and you're there and they fill out their forms and they send you home. But others are very helpful. So the helpfulness of that really depends upon the doctor. But it is a wise thing to do. And when you go there, they'll ask you a series of questions. Sometimes it's a questionnaire that they give you before you see the doctor. And then when you actually see the doctor, if, if he's worth his salt, he'll ask you questions about your health and how you're doing. Are there any changes? And He'll, he'll do some, 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 just a basic poking and prodding on you to, to make sure that you're healthy and there's not anything glaring that you need to address. Well, this morning, I, I can't do that individually with you, but, but what I'm going to ask you to do is to, to walk with me through this passage and ask yourself these questions. Now, as we walk through, we're going to look at nine questions, general questions, and I want you to search yourself and, and ask the Lord to search you, to help you examine yourself. Now, when it comes to medical checkups, some people totally avoid this. Uh, maybe because they've had a doctor that wasn't very good and they just did, thought it was a waste of time. Um, sometimes it's because you're avoiding bad news. You just don't want to be told what's going on physically in your life. But this morning, don't don't think of it in those terms. Look, think of this as uh, as something helpful to examine your life, uh, to see if you're in the faith, and to see where you are in the faith as well. God intends His people to reflect upon their spiritual lives and independence upon Him, seek to grow in godliness. And so that's the intent of a message like this: is just to help you analyze where you're at spiritually, and and seek to address those things in your life that he wants to address, that God wants to address. And really, let's just get started by reading 2 Peter 1, and I'm just going to begin at verse 1 to, to help set some of the context, but in particular, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 5 to, to 7 uh, with, within that. So just, just know that. 2 Peter chapter 1, and it's the beginning of verse 1. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours, by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in our lives. Now, as we, we, before I get into asking you certain questions, I just want to kind of lay the groundwork, give you precautions 
and advice on making the most of a, of a study like this. Uh, this. This study is best coupled with your personal invitation to the Lord to examine your life, to expose what needs to be exposed. Uh, here I'm thinking about the prayer of, of King David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's, this is an invitation for God to search and know you, to examine you. Now, when you pray this, you're not praying for that he would gain information. God already knows you perfectly. He created you. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts from afar. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. So this isn't, this isn't praying for God to gain information. This is, you opening your life up to the searching gaze of God that he would bring to your attention those areas in your life that need to be transformed and changed. So God knows everything about you. You're just inviting God to do your work. Does he need that invitation? He doesn't need it. He'll do what he wants to do. But this shows that you're teachable, you're humble, and you want to grow. You you want the Lord's to, to work in your life to help you to grow to be more like him. So that's the first, I guess, precaution and advice. Second thing is, this study must be guided by the word of God. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, you can get a whole lot of advice from a whole lot of different books. Um, we just come back to the Bible. The Bible is our authoritative guide that God has given us to help us know him and to know what he expects and to know how to live for him. He would just Go back to passages like 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having thoroughly, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So every good thing that God wants you to do, you can be equipped for that through the Word of God. By understanding the Word of God and applying the Word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. Also think about Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. This describes the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have, to, uh, we have an account to give. And notice here the Word of God is described both as the Word of God, so something you read, but also something living. It's living and active. So you're talking about the Word of God given to us, but the Word of God incarnate as well, who examines us and uses His Word to search us and know us. And the sword mentioned is like that of a, of a surgeon's scalpel, carefully working in your life um, to, to cut out the things that need to be cut out. So that's, that's not a big, massive glancing sword. That's a, that's a surgeon's scalpel is what he what the word of god is likened to he's able to uncover the things that you can't uncover he's able to pierce through things that you can't pierce through when you don't understand yourself the lord knows you turn to his word seek his help to know you but our study must be guided by the word of god the reason i take such pains to mention this is because if you pick up a book on the spiritual disciplines or a book like Donald Whitney's uh, 10 Questions to, to um, Diagnose Your Spiritual Health or something like that. There are many helpful things in there. These men are faithful. But often I found that they're accidentally, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, there are other ideas that come in that are not so grounded in the Word of God. They, are, they, they mean to help you, but what they end up doing is misusing text of scripture to support things that they're particular about doing. For example, in one book, it mentions journaling. It mentions that as a spiritual discipline. And I just have to say, well, that might be very helpful to someone who enjoys writing. Some of you enjoy writing, and it's very helpful. I've found writing to be very therapeutic at times. But there's no scripture that says that you must write or journal. And, and that's what I'm talking about. Like, that's, that's a habit that might help some, but it's not a universal habit that God commands. But those things find their way, find their way into some of these books. They're not, they're not, um, they're not unhelpful, but they're just not biblical. You can't ground them to a, 
to a chapter and verse and say, thus saith the Lord, you must journal. It's just not there. Um, I also caution you that a lot of Christian mysticism seeps in when you begin talking about Christian discipline or the disciplines of the Christian life. And these can be very dangerous. Christian mysticism gives you the appearance and feeling of being close to God when when nothing farther from the truth is actually going on. I mean, you're doing things that God detests, but you think that you're doing things that he likes. So things these would be things like contemplative prayer, which is very popular within the Christian world today. And it doesn't, it's easy to misunderstand that term. I want you to be, uh, to contemplate what you're praying. I don't want you to, God does not want you to be mindless in praying. In fact, he rebukes that mindless repetition. But, but the term contemplative prayer implies, um, some mysticism to it and some extent that you're seeking to experience God through that time of prayer. Right? We must be grounded in the Word of God. God is a God of experience. So don't misunderstand me. Uh, when you meet God, you're going to have a wonderful experience. You've already had a wonderful experience if God has saved you and redeemed you. And that will continue. But it's the seeking after that experience that can lead you into a lot of trouble and lead you astray. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. If in the angel of light, that, that tells us he can deceive your sense of sight. And if he can deceive your sense of sight, he can deceive all your feelings. So your other, all your other senses, sense of smell, sense of feeling, everything else can be deceived because our sight is most perceptive. So that's what scripture is telling us. So when people rely upon what they're feeling for guidance as to whether they're doing is that good and godly or not, they are so misguided. Satan will misuse that 100% of the time because you just opened yourself up, up to that. And you could point to the fact that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, you name it, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they all have experiences. Why is it that these false religions have experiences that are very similar to some of the experiences of Christians? It's because it's not of God. That's just very clear. But the church today, because it's jettisoned the word of God and churches aren't teaching the word of God in in depth, then the congregation is not well equipped to be discerning on these things and are easily led astray. So as you think about your spiritual health and, and spiritual disciplines and things we do to help grow, Always, we always got to take these back to the Word of God and see whether these things are true or not. Even amongst men that are like faithful, I I would recommend Donald Whitney's uh, books generally, but just read them discerningly and take it back to the Word of God so that you don't pick up uh, unbiblical habits. So be biblical. God works through His Word. Now, the study is going to be the most helpful to you. If you will answer the questions, not as yes or no, but on a spectrum. And there are a few, perhaps a few questions that you would say, okay, yes or no makes the best sense. But try to answer them on a spectrum. Something like never, rarely, occasionally, regularly, or always. Right? Because most of us are in that spectrum. There's only one perfect man. That's Jesus Christ. None of us have arrived. Even Apostle Paul admitted that he had not attained that for which he was laid hold of. In other words, he wasn't perfected. He was still growing. So we all have room uh, to grow. This study will be more helpful to you if you answer honestly. Uh, When I was a pastor in Canada, I lived in a community where there are a lot of Dutch Reformed people, and I had never really been around those who grew up in a truly Reformed community. And I don't mean that just in a in a sense of soteriology and the doctrine of salvation. We are reformed in that sense. But there are other things that go along with being reformed, many cultural things that go along with that. And, and one of those is the fact that how they, how they celebrate the Sabbath, they're very strict with that. They call them Sabbatarians. Uh, there are things they could and could not do. Perhaps it was the most uh, similar thing we have in our area is the Amish. Um, so the reform don't don't jettison electricity like the Amish, but they have very strict rules. And I remember one of our uh, congregates in our church telling me that 
when he grew up, the, the pastor of the, of the Reformed Church would come and visit their, their home on an annual basis, kind of like an annual checkup. Uh, perhaps do like a catechism, make sure that they knew that and things like that. There could be some helpfulness to that. But he said that what, what his family would do is before the, they knew when the pastor was going to come, it wasn't a surprise, so they would clean up. Most Dutch homes are very clean, but they would clean up whatever they thought was messy. They'd take the TV and stick it in the closet. Now, in that community, the TV was like taboo. Um, and we must admit the TV brings in a lot of garbage. Now, it can be used for good, too, but it, it does bring in a lot of garbage. So I think that was the reasoning. And and so they would go through this little checkup with their pastor with just kind of like uh, porcelain faces, like everything's okay. And But meanwhile, that doesn't really represent who they are. So if you just go through this with kind of like a porcelain face and hiding those things in your life, it's not going to be so helpful to you. Right? So, so ask the Lord to examine your life. And you're not, I'm not asking you for responses on these things. So it's just between you and the Lord. Um, and, and know that in, in biblical counseling, what we see typically is that people tend to act like that, not be as transparent as they would. I had a very experienced biblical counselor once tell me that his counseling with people could probably take a third of the time if they would just be honest in the first session. So it takes several sessions for them to open up. And, and I, we understand why. Because our sin's embarrassing. It's ugly. And it, we just we just don't like to confess it and admit it. So it's understandable. I'm pleading with you is just ask the Lord to search. Uh, don't try to hide what's going on. Because if you expose it, allow the Lord to expose it. He cleanses it. He forgives it. He, he can help you walk in paths of righteousness. And cleanse you not just from, from the guilt of it, but from the stain of it in your life and, and the struggles you have with it. So with that in mind, let, let's just get started with asking questions. And here we're going to go back to Second Peter and, and start there. Right? First question is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Notice how, how Peter starts there in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 5. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, and he goes on and lists other things. It begins begins with faith. Spiritual growth starts with faith. What is faith? Well, faith is defined for us in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, the word hope, in, in the way our English usage, is used with to convey a great deal of doubt. But that's not the scriptural use. Like the... The everyday use that so we use the word hope, we could say, well, I hope it doesn't snow too much today. But you don't really know whether it will or, or whether it will or whether it won't. And some of you are hoping the other way. You see a bunch of snow. But the point of it is the biblical use of hope is, is just what uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says at the end, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this isn't the power of positive thinking like, like, uh, other, like false teachers would tell you. This is conviction based upon the Word of God. So it's trusting that God will do exactly what He said He will do. This is faith in Christ. And really, you get, uh, I guess, another good, good uh, uh, working definition of faith from Romans 4 or 5. Just listen to that. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul's talking about justification. There's the one who, who tries to work and, and tries to gain his own righteousness. But Paul says, but, but the one who, but the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies whom? The ungodly. That's what Romans 4, 5 says. Now, how does God justify the ungodly? I mean, that, that should shock every Catholic. And it, in a sense, it should shock us too. God? justifies the ungodly. You would expect it to say God justifies the godly. You know, those who practice and those who go to church and take care of of widows and orphans and things like that. But he doesn't. He says, who justifies the ungodly by faith. By faith. His faith is counted as righteousness. 
So our faith in Jesus Christ is is that the text is telling us is, is like trust. So faith isn't just believing information, that factoids about Christ. Even the demons know that Christ exists, but they're not saved. So faith is trusting. It's the assurance of, of what you cannot see with your eyes because it's written in the Word of God. Faith is trusting Jesus Christ to provide a righteousness which you need in order to enter heaven. So all efforts at spiritual growth are just fleshly and vain if you don't have faith. If you don't have faith, but try to apply the remainder of this passage in 2 Peter 1, then your life is like the sinking Titanic. And while while your ship is sinking, you're rearranging the deck chairs. Right? You're tired of how it looks, and you're just rearranging these chairs on the deck all the while your ship is is sinking down into icy waters that you're not going to survive. So faith is required for salvation. God must give you a new life, new capability to apply these things so that they're not just mere mere um, Phariseeism, that is, just doing the actions without the true heart of it. So ask yourself, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Procrastination is a tool of the enemy. Procrastination is is a sin of presuming upon the future. When you say, "Ah, I will believe in Christ in one day future. I ask you to, to look on the internet and look up a sermon from Spurgeon called Now. One word title, now. Now is the time of salvation. If you delay, you are presuming, which is a sin, upon the future. That you have a future. Now is the day of salvation. Believe in Christ now. And just like a a simple passage that's well known in our culture at least, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's God's word. Believe in him and you will not perish. You will be granted eternal life. Don't trust in your own ability to please God. Don't trust in your own ability to figure out the way to God. Jesus Christ is the only way to God because he said so. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. That is, no one gets to heaven but through Him. So do you believe in the Son of God? Do you have faith? 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So we start with that question. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Recognize, dear beloved, that there is an initial faith with shaves, but your faith with shaves is not perfect. So even here, I ask you to, to consider the fact that the saving faith of which you have needs to be strengthened and growing. Do you, do you always and immediately believe God's word? If you answer honestly, right, I think the answer is, well, sometimes there's doubt mixed in there, just like the apostles. When there's that little bit of doubt thrown in with your faith, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that you have doubt in you that needs to come out. You're like the disciples that, that need to plead with the Lord to strengthen your faith, increase your faith. So do you have faith in Jesus Christ? So look at question two. Do you thirst for God? And here we're going to go outside of, of 2 Peter chapter 1. But it's really a growth and outcropping of faith in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, you are going to thirst for God. That imagery is used in Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now again, you can get into some books that talk about some mystical idea of thirsting for God, but essentially it just, it just means that you long to be with God. And even there we must admit that God is omnipresent, There's nowhere you can flee from him. So here we're talking about longing to be with God in a place where he is exalted, where his glory radiates, where you see the beauty of his gloriness, Um, beauty of his glory. Uh, Think about Psalm 65, 4. 
Or, or here the psalmist says, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. Think about that. If you're a Christian, God has chosen you and he longs to bring you near to him. And it's in that nearness to God that you will be blessed, that you will be happy, truly happy, eternally happy. Um, this almost continues. He said that, that he would dwell in the courts of God. He said he prays that we will be satisfied with your goodness of your house, your holy temple, the place of God's dwelling. Psalm 84, 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, ever praising that the closeness of God, the nearness of God is our good if we are in Christ. If you're in faith, the nearness of God is your good. It is your doom if you are not in Christ. If you are not beloved, if you're not washed by faith in Jesus Christ and not born again, the nearness of God is judgment. But to those who are called of God to be children of God, the nearness of God is our good. So this is a this is a longing of our heart to be near the Lord. And really, this is why we long for heaven. Now, I understand our culture is going very anti-God and anti really what's what's good for culture. And so sometimes you can just long for heaven because you're so tired of like of just the stupidity of government right now and doing things that are harmful to our society. And so you long for the perfect king. But understand that that a true biblical longing for heaven, it longs to be rid of sin and the, and all the stupidity and the harmful effects of sin. But more predominant than wanting to be away with sin, you want to be with God. You know there are there are unbelievers who long for utopia, but they want a utopia without God. As Christians, we want utopia, but it's a utopia with God. In fact, we would say if God were not there, it would not be utopia. It would be a mess. We don't want that. Uh, we want to be like like have that attitude of the psalmist. Psalm. Uh, and again, it's Psalm 84, verse 10. He says, better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He's speaking in hyperbole. Just just give me a day, Lord. It's better than a thousand. One day with you is better than a thousand elsewhere. None of us here will live a thousand. Right? But, we, but we could say that one day with the Lord is better than a hundred on, on this earth. That's That's how good it is to be with the Lord. Think about the best experience you've ever had on earth whatever whatever that is it's gonna be different things for different people but think about the best experience you've ever had as a child as an adult whatever being with the lord is going to be a thousand times better than that a thousand times so do you long or thirst to be with god do you thirst for god third question are you increasing in moral excellence? And here we're just going to go back to 2 Peter 1. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Now, moral excellence is, can be translated by some Bibles as, as virtue. Uh, this, this characteristic is used to speak of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 3. It says there, he says, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So this it's the same word translated excellence in the end of verse three, talking about moral excellence in verse five, because it's applied for to us. We're called to be morally excellent like our Savior, Jesus Christ. There was a, a movement years ago uh, that just asked the question, what would Jesus do? You know, navigate your life by asking that question. That can be a helpful question to think through. What would Jesus do? Now, you, now it, it fails because Jesus is the perfect man, but under, but and we're not. But understand, that's what we need to be aiming towards, is that moral excellence. Uh, John MacArthur uh, explains that moral excellence refers to Moral heroism, and here I'll just quote him, moral heroism viewed as the divinely endowed ability to excel in heroic, courageous deeds. And it came to encompass the most outstanding quality in someone's life or the proper and excellent fulfillment of a task or duty, unquote. 
So moral excellence is just someone who is that ability to excel at what you're doing, whatever it, whatever you're doing, um, whatever you do, doing with excellence. And the moral excellence is is flows out into activities, into these other characteristics that we're going to look at. Uh, the term moral excellence is also used by Paul in, or is used by Paul in Philippians four eight. And I think this verse helps us to understand what it means to be excellent. Uh, Philippians 4.8, some of you maybe have, meant, have memorized this to try to help you uh, overcome some anxiety or problems that you're dealing with mentally. But I'll just read it to you. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, same word, any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. So all of those terms that came before the word excellence are descriptors of what excellence means. Whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. That's what it means to be morally excellent, to pursue that. So I'll give you a, give you a biblical example of this. Like Christ is the perfect example of it. But if you want a, a, a human example, think about Boaz in the book of Ruth. No matter what situation Boaz found himself in, he just does the right thing. He takes care of Ruth. He provides for her. He ends up redeeming her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Even when he could have compromised, he could have taken advantage of her, he didn't do that. He just did the right thing. And that's what we want to aim for. That's what this term calls us to do. So how are you doing in the area of moral excellence? Think, Think through this from various aspects of your life. Do you run your business with moral excellence? Do you care for your family with moral excellence? Do you love your spouse with moral excellence? Do you pay your taxes with moral excellence? Do you drive your car with moral excellence? Do you interact with your coworkers or clients with moral excellence? You need to be growing in moral excellence. Examine the various aspects and relationships of your life and ask yourself, am I growing in moral excellence? None of us have arrived. I'll just restate that. None of us have arrived. So examine your life, not to beat yourself down, but to ask the Lord to help you grow in these things. Because you are an ambassador for Christ. And if you're not growing in moral excellence, then your ambassadorship casts a stain upon Christ. You're still an ambassador. But you just cast a stain upon his name. You give the enemies of God reason to defame the name of Christ when we don't act with moral excellence. So moral excellence is is required. And understand, all of this is in the context of something surprising. I'm going to go back to the beginning, uh, verse 3. See that his divine power has granted to us what? Everything. Pertaining to what? Life and what else? Godliness. He has supplied it. So what we're calling to do to do is something that God has already provided for you, but you need to tap into it and do it. So what we're talking about here is sanctification. Who sanctifies you? Oh, God. Ultimately. But you're called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 2, 12. What is he talking about? We're dependent upon God, but we're called to work it out? Well, that's right. God ordains not only the end, but he also ordains the means. You are called to work at these things. You are called to supply them. And going back to our text in, in 2 Peter, just Look at what he, how he leads into this. He says, for this very reason, applying all, applying all diligence. Um, applying, it's kind of hard to translate this in, in, into English with, with capturing all the meaning. It, it, it calls you to make a strong, diligent effort. Applying all diligence. You know what the word diligence means? It means faithful, carry out uh, all your tasks, all your responsibilities. But he's emphasizing it. All diligence. Make a diligent effort. Uh, make a strong diligent effort to supply what is needed. And, and look at the word supply. In your faith, 
supply moral excellence. The word that word supply used to be used of like a choir director who would supply everything that the choir needed, everything at his own cost. So it's it's the idea of you supplying that. Now you are not the resource for that. Ultimately, you must depend upon the Lord for help. But you also cannot just sit back and say, "Oh God, make me morally excellent." You can't just let go and let God. You are called to supply this in your faith. Supply it. Be diligent. It's going to require work. It's require effort. It's moral excellence isn't just going to happen. You've got to work diligently in faith, in Christ, depend upon the Holy Spirit for help, but you have got to work at it. This is part in part why there are so many baby Christians who are very old in the faith, but not very mature. Because they just think that, that God's going to do it all. And God gets all the credit. You must realize that even when we grow in Christ, he gets all the glory because he supplied it. He's the one that's at work in us to, to do these good works. And so we're called to work with him. And in fact, that's what Philippians 2.12 says, you know, that we're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you. You're called to do it, but God's doing the work through you. So it's it's like us working with God, but without God, we would get nothing done. We would make no accomplishment. So it's God working through us and he gets the credit. And at the same time, we're called to work through him and not be passive in this. So you have a role to increase in moral excellence. Question four. Let's look at question four. Are you increasing in the knowledge of the word of God? Now, now Peter says, are you increasing in knowledge? He's basically, are you adding, are you supplying knowledge? So that's the, the word supply is implied in each one of these characteristics that we look at. He says, for this very reason, also supplying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Now, the word supply doesn't appear again, but it is implied in your moral excellence, knowledge. That is supply knowledge. And this is, this is ultimately knowledge of the word of God, knowledge of God himself. And knowledge here isn't just information. Uh, you can fill your head with all sorts of information about the Bible and not be changed by it. So we're seeking to apply it. Knowledge here is spiritual truth properly understood and applied. So think about that. Knowledge is spiritual truth properly understood and applied. You don't really know the scriptures until you're seeking to apply them and put them into practice. Um, Think about a passage that uh, we've gone through fairly recently, Second Peter uh, 2 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. So add knowledge. You may not be, um, you may not consider yourself to be like a reader. You, not, you may not be someone who considers yourself to be like a great student. That's okay. God has made you the way that he has. You have to find ways to get the word of God into you. We have so many tools available to us today. You, if you're not a reader, you can make yourself a good listener. You can listen to the word of God. You need to get the word of God into you. And we just have so many tools to do them. That is the tool of sanctification that God is going to use to make you more morally excellent. And some of the other characteristics we'll look at as well. Uh, John, Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So are you increasing in the knowledge of God? Are you increasingly, ask yourself this, a sub-question, are you increasingly governed by the word of God when you have to make a decision? Are you going to the word of God to see what the word of God has to say about that decision? Many decisions we have to make aren't directly addressed in the scriptures, but every decision that we make is indirectly addressed by the Word of God. There are there are things that help us make decisions. Are we governed by the Word of God? The, the Word of God is a light, but it is a, is it a light unto your path? Or are you just kind of making things up on your own? So God, are you increasingly governed by the Word of God? And along with that, add this sub-question, are you increasingly teachable, accepting correction and submissive to the authority God has placed over you. Children, are you growing in obedience and submission to your parents? 
that that's a good indicator for you on your own spiritual health because everybody wants to do it their own way and every child faces those temptations uh, to do it their own way every adult faces temptations to do it their own way i'll make my own way to god or i'll do it my own way but that but that way that is going to lead to hell right? the way of honoring god is to is to be submissive to the word of god god has placed over you Sources of authority to help you, guide you. And that's true even of adults. We all have sources of authority over us. Pastors and teachers are given to help you understand the Word of God and rightly apply it to your life. So are you increasingly teachable when when you're approached by things concerning the Word of God? Are you accepting correction? Correction is really not very fun at all. I've never met anybody that liked correction, but it is so needed. It's the person who corrects you, who loves you. They may not do it in all the right ways, so you may have to overlook some things as they grow and, and learn how to communicate you know, biblical correction. But that correction, the heart of it is for your good, that you would learn, that you would grow in the knowledge of a Lord and Savior in that and how to apply the, the Word of God to your life. So are you increasing in knowledge? Fifth question, are you increasing in self-control? Look at Second Peter uh, chapter one, verse beginning of verse six, and in your knowledge, self-control. So in your in your knowledge, supply self-control. Now, self-control means control of oneself. Self-control refers to restraint of emotions, of one's emotions, impulses, and desires. It's a really good way to think about it. Restraining your emotions, your impulses, and desires. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit, according to Galatians five twenty-two, and I would argue. All of these characteristics we're looking at today are ultimately produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives, and yet we're called to supply them. You are called to be self-controlled. Again, you can't just get you can't just sit back on the couch and say, God, give me self-control. You should pray for self-control, but you need to supply that. You must be actively working to grow in, in self-control. Self-control is needed to avoid the deeds of the flesh. Uh, mentioned in Galatians 5.19. Just read some of these to you because it helps us understand the need for self-control. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So self-control helps battle all of these evil deeds of the flesh. When you, when you blow up at your children because they didn't listen to you, or when you blow up at your spouse, that's a deed of the flesh. And the way that you correct that, one of the ways you correct it or attack it is through self-control. Growing in self-control. Asking the Lord to help you grow in self-control. Studying about self-control. Reading books about self-control. So how are you doing in the area of self-control? You should see growth in your life. Are you controlling your passions, your anger, your appetites, your desires, your cravings? Or are you just giving in to them? Right? And this covers all sorts of things. Like for appetites, like it, is, it is fairly notorious for pastors to be fat. Right? They are demonstrating a lack of self-control with their appetite. Now, I'm not arguing that we need to be the American ideal of fitness. I'm not saying that. Right? We've made an idol out of fitness, so don't misunderstand me. Uh, I'm just picking on pastors uh, because it, it, it's a it's an easy target, but you want to get the point. It's it's a demonstration. We all need to be self controlled. I need to be self controlled and with my appetite. And um, you know, I like cherry pie, but I have to be self controlled in how much cherry pie I eat, especially when Betty makes it. So, you know, it's these are things that are necessary in our lives that are for our good. We must be self-controlled or our lives are going to be a, a train wreck. We're going to invite a lot of hardship into our lives um, and into our family's lives if we do not have self-control. So that's the fifth question. Are you increasing in self-control? Uh, sixth question. Are you increasing in perseverance? And here's where it goes from tough to hard. Perseverance. Uh, so in your self-control, you are to supply perseverance. Perseverance refers to the capacity to hold out or bear up uh, in the face of difficulty. 
Right? It is it is that ability to remain stressed or under load and not panic. Uh, when I say stress, I don't mean in the sinful sense of of anxiety, but I just mean it's a stressful situation. You're going through difficulty, but you're not panicked. You're persevering. You're relying upon the Lord. Perseverance is needed in all sorts of areas of our lives. Sometimes it's because of the difficulty, difficult situation that we're going through. We mentioned we prayed earlier for the Christians in Nigeria. Uh, there's no easy solution to their situation. Uh, they are called by God to persevere through the the persecution that they are that they are currently facing. Um, but perseverance is also needed in prayer. And sometimes you pray and you pray and you just don't see an answer. And you keep praying and you wonder if God ever hears. Well, he is hearing. And and he doesn't need to be told a hundred times. But what he's wanting to do is to teach you how to persevere in prayer. Think about Luke 18. There's a parable there of the unjust judge and this, this widow who just keeps coming back to the judge. And finally, the judge just says, oh, you know, I, I don't really care about righteousness, but I want the woman to stop bugging me, so I'm going to give her what she wants. Now, the, the reason of that parable is not to say, is God like that? Do we have to annoy God in order to get what we want? No, that's not the point of the parable. Jesus tells us what the point of the parable is in the first verse. Now, he was telling, actually, this is Luke telling us this. Now, he was telling them a parable to show at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So, if, if a widow that doesn't have faith is willing to just to plead her case persistently before an unjust judge, how much more so should we consistently plead our case before a just God who will answer? So, persevere in prayer. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time will we reap if we do not grow weary. You know, when things don't change in our time frame, we can get weary and discouraged. Scriptures say, persevere. Okay? Continue on. Persevere. Do the right thing. Hebrews twelve three. It says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what do you do when you're when you're growing weary? You look to Christ, who persevered through great hostility and honored God as morally excellent in all of that. Look to him. So ask yourself a question, a sub-question to this. When when facing difficulties, do you wilt or quit? run away or hide when God has ordained that you walk that path to, the, to his glory and honor. Uh, it, is, it is inevitable that difficulties will come in this life. But the question is, is, how do we respond to these things? We all will make the prayer, Lord, take this away. And there's nothing wrong with praying that. But, but realize that he's put you there at that time and he may choose Instead of taking it away, teaching you how to walk through that difficulty. I'm told there's an African proverb, and I've mentioned this before, so forgive me if you heard it before, but I'll, I'll repeat it. There's an African proverb that, that when, that when Africans, Christian, African Christians experience difficulty, they pray for the Lord to strengthen their back, to handle the load. Whereas we in the comfort of Western world, our first prayer is that God remove it. So there's something that, that we can learn from our African brethren. We, we have times where we just need for God to pray that God would strengthen our back. That's metaphorical use. Strengthen you to, to walk the difficult road that he's, that he's asking you to walk. Right? So the Christian life absolutely requires perseverance. And, and you must supply this. Again, God is the ultimate supply, but he's calling you to supply endurance and the perseverance. Um, and, you know, life's difficult. We're going to fail. Others are going to fail us. There are going to be plenty of reasons to give up, but God's word says endure. Add endurance uh, to your life. Now, we cannot give up. Continue to trust God's word and walk in, in faithfulness. So question six, are you increasing in perseverance? Question seven, are you increasing in godliness? Now, this At the end of verse six, so and in your perseverance, supply godliness. Now, godliness here is a is really speaking of reverence for God. Godliness refers to devoutness, a piety, a fear of God, a sense of worship. Uh, this this word godly is is also used in speaking 
um, uh, is used in verse 3. See where his divine power is granted to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. So again, God's supplying everything, but you're called to supply it yourself. You're, you're called to, to add in. So your, your resource is God himself. You're called to actively participate in that supply. It growing in godliness. Uh, what does it look like for someone to be godly? Uh, Acts 10 verses 1 to 2 give us a, a good idea. This is spoken of of Cornelius. So Cornelius, who is a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, in verse 2 says he, was, he describes him as a devout man. The word devout is godly man. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave many alms to the people and prayed to God continually. So it gives us some aspects of what a, a devout or a godly person looks like. They, they um, fear God. He was giving alms to people. That is, he was giving to the poor who needed it. And he prayed to God continually. So godliness impacts our prayer life. Godliness impacts our actions. Godliness isn't just, just your vertical relationship with God. It's, it also impacts your horizontal relationship with God. So that when you see a need that you can meet, you meet that need. So that you're praying continually. It doesn't mean that this centurion was always in the temple. Guess what? He couldn't go to the temple. He was in stationed in Caesarea for, for one thing. Second thing, he was a Gentile, so he could only go into the court of the Gentiles. He couldn't go into the temple. And yet the Holy Spirit calls him a devout man. So if a centurion in the employment of the Roman army can be called a godly man, you can be called a godly woman or a godly man today. And whatever profession you're at, whatever stage of life you're at, that requires depending on God, fearing him. So godliness helps you grieve over sin. Godliness gives you the desire to pursue holiness. Uh, and speaking of holiness, if, if you want to grow in this, read Jerry Bridges' book on the pursuit of holiness and his the kind of companion with that, the pursuit of holiness. Uh, sorry, the practice of holiness. The pursuit of holiness and the practice of holiness. Those are very helpful, practical books on, on growing in, in godliness. Godliness helps you to forgive others. You know, you're never more like God than when you forgive someone for an offense that they've done against you. Right? Never more like God. I didn't invent that. MacArthur, but I've seen it in other places. He didn't invent it either. It's You're never more like God than when you forgive someone who has offended you, done something to hurt you. The godliness helps you to forgive. So are you increasing in godliness. Question eight. Are you increasing in your brotherly kindness? And this is in verse seven. And in your godliness supply brotherly kindness. Now, brotherly kindness is a, a translation of a Greek term which you have heard even if you've never studied Greek. Philadelphia. City, city of brotherly love. And at times is anything but that. Right? Which is not uncommon to most of our big cities today. But that's what the word means. City of brotherly love. Brotherly kindness. This, this uh, is, a, is a combo Greek word that takes the word uh, for love, for, for brotherly, uh, and brother, and combines it with the word for love. And you might ask, well, who is my brother in this particular context? Well, first and foremost, it refers to a love for other Christians, and in particular, a love for your local church. That's where you're going to interact with, with other Christians, is in your local church. So some sub-questions with this. Um, is uh, are, you can ask yourself are these like do you increasingly delight in the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ? That's the local church. Yes, it's bigger than the local church, but it is the local church. Does the local church have a lot of problems? Yeah, because we're sinners. We're still in progress. We're going to hurt each other. Many of you, I've I've heard your stories. You've been hurt by people in in the church in the past. And you're probably going to get hurt by people in the church in the future. Not that anybody's intending that, but we're just sinners. We're, we're going to need to learn how to be very kind to one another in a brotherly sense. Um, are, are you increasing in your delight in the church? Is, is church something, is an event you come to because you know that God commands it? You know, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a habit of some. Are you here because you delight in doing it? Now, I'll, I'll give you a little tidbit. There's a, 
uh, very helpful, some very helpful lessons that we watched from the Center for Thinking Biblically from the Masters uh, University. And one of those was on habits. So if you weren't here on Wednesdays, go watch those. The Center for Thinking Biblically. Go to the masters.edu. Go to the bottom. Look for Center for Thinking Biblically. Go to the lessons on habits and watch those. Because habits actually have a have the ability to change your desire. So why I'm mentioning this is because you might be here because you know you're just supposed to be. And that's good because you're obeying God. But if you will continue to do that and invest yourself in the lives of the people who are here, part of this church, you will begin to love them. Your habit of meeting with the church and of serving each other and ministering to one another will change your desires so that you love the church. And, and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, the local church is, is the place where God is working to perfect us and grow us and change us and transform us. So another question to ask yourself is this. Is the local church, apply it to us, is Medina Bible Church uh, the place you love to hang out with people? Or do you just tolerate one another because you don't need to be here? I know... For most of you, I know the answer to that because you, you enjoy one another. I can see that. And not just enjoy it in the fleshly sense, but you long to minister to one another. You know, it's like the sense of which sometimes you just don't want to come because you're tired. Um, but when you make the effort to be here, you're blessed. And you will often receive way more than you give someone else when you make, make the effort to be here and, and to invest in other people's lives. So, Understand that to demonstrate brotherly kindness requires a commitment to the local church. Uh, it requires a serving within the, the local church. This is this is why it's it's so needed. A commitment to a local church is so needed because it'll help you to grow in brotherly kindness. You will not grow as you need to in brotherly kindness without the local church. Can't emphasize that enough. So question eight: Are you increasing in brotherly kindness? Now, obviously, there's a wider sense of which the brother you can apply to like your neighbor. Um, but the primary sense that Peter has in mind here is that of loving each other. And, and that's due to, to the emphasis on brotherly kindness, which leads us to the, to the ninth question, and that is love. Are you increasing in love? So at the end of verse 7, we're called there by Peter, in your brotherly kindness, love. That is, supply love. And here... This is the, the Greek term that you're familiar with, agape. This is sacrificial love. This is love that meets the needs of others, even when it costs you a lot to, to deliver that. Agape love considers the interest of others as more important than our own. Agape love esteems others. Agape love chooses to love. You're not waiting for the other person to do something to earn that love. Agape love just chooses to love chooses to make sacrifices, chooses to serve. Uh, agape love is described by the action verbs of 1 Corinthians 13.1. So you won't take time to, to look at that now, but, but jot it down and remind yourself of that. That's what agape love is. Are you growing in sacrificial love for others? Right? This is the love with which you've been loved by God, and He's he is commanding us to be growing in this. Are you Growing in sacrificial love for others? Are you growing in sacrificial love for your spouse, for those that are married? Are you growing in sacrificial love for your parents' children? So parents are called to sacrifice for children, and that's the predominant way that it, that it happens until the parents get older. But nonetheless, children should, should grow in this. Train yourself while you're young in an agape love, in, in serving and in growing in love for your family members, including your parents? Are you growing in love for your local church? Are you growing in love for the lost, your neighbors, your lost co-workers? Are you growing in love for your missionaries? Right? So our missionaries are, are need our, our love, our sacrificial love, to not just provide financially for them, but to encourage them, to write notes to them, uh, to pray for them on a regular basis. So we are called to increase in love. And I think this is really the capstone. If if we are loving God and loving others, the other these other characteristics will all, will all be there to, to a certain extent or another. Um, 
Love is an enduring, non-negotiable characteristic of the Christian life. Um, just think about these verses. I'll just pull the verses, some verses from 1 John. 1 John 3.23 And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us, just, he gave, just as He gave a commandment to us. In 1 John 4, uh, being at verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then later in that same chapter, he says, and we have come to, to know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love has been perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So are you increasing in love for others? That sacrificial love. Right? So realize that we're not talking about feelings here. Sacrificial love is measured by what it costs you to give it without any um, pre-qualifications, without any um, claim to, to want to have, to reciprocate, for that person to reciprocate back to you. So what are these questions? Let's review them. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you thirst for God? Are you increasing in moral excellence? Are you increasing in knowledge? Are you increasing in self-control? Are you increasing in perseverance? Are you increasing in godliness? Are you increasing in brotherly kindness? And are you increasing in love? And I, and I just want to encourage you that, that there, I'm sure with each one of these, there's areas in your life that you're like, yeah, I need to work on that. You can't work on everything at once, so prioritize. Think through your priorities. Anything dealing with your relationship, your vertical relationship with God has to, has to be prioritized. Like if your relationship with God is a train wreck, you can't really fix your marriage. You can't work on that. You can't love others unless your relationship with God is, is right and good. Um, prioritize. Set reasonable goals. Again, that, that lesson on building habits is very helpful with setting healthy habits, healthy goals. Uh, for example, if if you want to start exercising, you want to do 100 push-ups, don't set yourself a goal of 100 push-ups tomorrow. Just start with one. And do one consistently every day until you can do a little more and build on that. Because what you're trying to do, you're trying to get to 100, but ultimately what you're trying to do is build a pattern of faithfulness. And good habits will do that. Set those reasonable goals to do that. And that, that lesson on habits is very helpful for that reason. Seek to grow in faithfulness. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask your brothers and sisters for accountability, encouragement in these things. And remember that God has supplied everything that you're called to supply. God's already supplied it. So seek Him for the help. He'll give you what you need. you got to apply it and tap into the resources that He's giving you in order to do that. Apply all diligence. You know, I... I uh, I love my father. My father's no longer living. Uh, he was a notorious procrastinator. You know, when we talk about him needing to walk and exercise more, he's say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'll do that when I get home. Because we talked about it when he visited us up here. But guess what? When he got home, it didn't actually happen. There's always, there's always something impeding, something stopping him from actually implementing the changes he, he knew he needed to make. So this message will be a failure if all you do is walk away and say, yeah, 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 I need, I need to change. 
and you don't do anything. But it will, it will succeed and be a benefit in your life if there's just even just one area of your life that you take away and say, yes, I need to change that area. I commit to making some changes, setting some goals in that area to grow in that. And just even if it's just one area, seek to grow. God will be glorified and you will be encouraged and you won't regret investing the time in that. And that's really what's called about applying all diligence. Right? Work at it. Persevere in it. Start doing these things. Don't procrastinate. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, I just want to praise you that you're so patient with us. You're the perfect and holy one. And we're far from perfect. But you know that. And you chose us in you before the foundation of the world. You knew we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that even saving us, we would continue to struggle with sins. And, and yet you chose to set your love upon us. Lord, we just praise you for your patience. Praise you that you've supplied us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord God, help us to walk in obedience, to apply these things to our lives, uh, to just to change, even in one, one area. And I pray that you would change us in many areas to be more like Christ. Lord, you have prepared these good works ahead of time that we would walk in them. So help us to walk. Help us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you have called us. Or just do a marvelous work in, in each one of our lives for your glory and for our good. Or put wind in our sails and just help us to be obedient and apply these, um, these commands and these, um, this, this text to our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.